Good to be here. Um, last week, if you, if you weren't here, you missed out on a great, a great time we had together. Um, we had um, Rob and Sarah did a brilliant job at bringing out how God sees us and our identity in Christ and what he speaks into us. Um, and it was, it, was, it was very good, quite profound. Um, it made me think, and I, I was reflecting on it all week. So part of what I'm going to speak about today is kind of like bounces off um, uh, what Rob and Sarah uh, brought last week. And I'm going to be speaking about the purpose of identity. So although identity has a good and, and in itself there is some goodness in it, there is something that is greater beyond just identity that I want to try and dig into today and, and hopefully bring something out if, if my thoughts come out clearly. Um, if they don't, then I've at least got something out of it for myself, and I'm, I apologize to you guys. But anyway, let's start. We're going to start in Ephesians 1. We're going to be reading from verse 3 through to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestines us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I could read those verses over and over and over again. When I read those verses, there's something in me just seems to come alive. There's something about these verses that seem to draw me in and draw me out in a way that I can't even fully comprehend or understand. So we want to try and dig a little bit into this and try and understand what purpose our identity has and see how these verses can help. Um, over the last few weeks, I've been watching this TV program called Breakpoint. And it's a documentary on the tennis players uh, that are up and coming. And, and if anyone here is a tennis fan, for the last decade and a half, it's been dominated by 
the men's side has been dominated by three people only, really. Three people have dominated the men's tennis in such a way that anyone else who gets a look in, all they're hoping for is these three guys don't turn up. And that's um, Djokovic, uh, Federer, and Nadal. These three players have pretty much won every tournament, every major championship for the last decade and a half. And so this TV program is saying these guys, the premise of this is these guys are starting to get old. Roger Federer has, has just retired or retired last year. Um, they're coming to the end of their career, these guys. So now there's an opportunity for the next generation to come up. Who is going to step up and take the place? And one of these uh, episodes they were doing, they, they were um, at the French Open. And if anyone knows anything about Rafael Nadal, he has won the French Open 14 times. And his record is such that out of the, all the games he's played, he's won over 110 games at just at, um, at the French Open, and he's only lost three times. In his whole career, he's only lost three times at the French Open. And they even make it a little bit more remarkable. It's only twice in his whole career at the French Open has anyone taken him to more than four sets. Only twice have they taken him to five sets. So he's a guy who's pretty much dominated the French Open. And so this documentary is coming along and is trying to see who's the next up-and-comers. And it follows a few guys that are in their early 20s, 21, 22, around that age. And the interesting thing about this part of the documentary is they seem to have this focus on who is coaching these young players. Who's influencing them? Who's directing them and bringing them on? And there's one guy from Canada called Felix. And he's known as, from a very young age of 17, he was seen as the next big thing. And now he's, he's 21, 22, and he hasn't won a major tournament, and everyone's like, the expectation's growing. And this Felix thought, the way I need to get better, and particularly at the French Open, the way I'll get better is if I get the best coach possible. So he goes out and he gets um, a guy fondly known as Uncle Tony. And everyone knows him as Uncle Tony because he's the uncle of Nadal. He's the uncle of the most successful player at the French Open. And for years, he's coached Rafael Nadal. So he knows not only how to play on clay, but how to teach how to play on clay. And he's taught the best of the best. And so this Felix thought, the best I'm going to do is get the best I can. And so he invites this Uncle Tony to come be on his team. And the documentary goes through, and it's, and it's showing us about um, how Uncle Tony is, is helping Felix. But there's always, you can see on screen, there's a tension between them. And this tension comes to a head when Felix has to play Nadal. And they ask Uncle Tony, who are you supporting? Now, Uncle Tony is paid He's paid to coach Felix. And so he's on Felix's team 100%. And when they interview him, they say, who do you hope to win? And he goes, well, 
I hope Nadal wins. Why would I vote against, or why would I go against my nephew? Of course, I would want my nephew to win. He means more to me. And this is before the match is even played. And here is Felix, who's hired the best of the best to support him and tell him how to do it. And now the question is, has Uncle Tony even told me how to beat Nadal? Has he really told me the secrets I need to become a champion? And there's a big uproar happens as a lot of the media goes, how can you do that? How can you be paid by one to be supporting them and then come out and support the opposition? And they said, so whose box are you going to sit in? So when they're at the, at the tennis, you have the, the coach's box that sit for the players. And they said, so whose box are you going to sit in then, Tony? Whose box? And he goes, neither. Neither the one who's paying me nor the one who I am supporting wholeheartedly. I'm going to sit in the middle. And I was watching this, and you can see in these programs, the whole time what they're trying to do is they're showing you the turmoil that goes through a tennis player's mind as they come up to every match. You see, tennis is one of those games which is one of the most individualistic games on the planet. Every tournament, there is 128 the major tournaments, 128 people start, but you have 127 losers every single tournament. Only one person gets to come out and say, I did well, I won. And it's a, such an individualistic and self-centered sport that in these moments when someone who should be supporting them fully doesn't, you see the turmoil in their mind. And it goes on that, Felix plays Nadal in, the, in this match, and Felix does really well, and he takes Nadal to five sets, only the third man in history to do it, but he still loses. In the fifth set, Uncle Tony just gets up and leaves. He doesn't even look at, doesn't even stay to watch the rest of it. The contrast between that and the next coach that they spoke about there's another guy called Kasper. He's from Norway. And he's an up-and-coming 23-year-old. He's actually been going to Nadal's um, academy to learn how to play like Nadal. And he's seen as one of the best, other than Nadal, one of the best clay court specialists in the world. His coach is different. His coach is his dad. And there's a scene that comes out during this documentary where Casper needs to just take 15 minutes to warm up before a match. And he goes out to warm up on this court. And as he goes out to warm up, there's this threat of rain. And as soon as rain comes on clay courts, they just cover them up straight away. And so Casper, he says, I just need 15 minutes. Routine is everything to a tennis player. They need the routine to stay in that, that moment, to be able to keep that mentality. And he just said, I just need 15 minutes to train. And they say, no, we're pulling the covers over. When they start to do this, the coach of Casper steps in. And he doesn't step in as a coach. He steps in as a father. And he says to the documentary, he says, there is something more powerful about a coach being a father. Because I don't just want them to win. I want them to succeed at all in life. 
And he steps in and he argues profusely with the people, the match committee trying to... And he, and he actually goes the extra mile of actually saying, you don't just make decisions up there. You come down here and you make decisions in front of me. They're on a phone trying to tell them they're going to close the court down. And he goes out and fights for his son. The difference of the coaches. One paid, but is not really committed. Another who is utterly committed to the point that they would do anything for their son, their, their player to succeed. And I was thinking about the contrast between these two things and the way it brings up identity in both these young men. One young man knows that he's got someone who has his back. His identity as a tennis player and as someone who is going to be supported is assured. He's, his coach is his father. And he has his back 100%. This other player has hired in the best and he's not even in his side. He's not even in his box. He's not even for him. And you can see the conflict of, am I enough? Am I good enough? Why won't he support me fully? And it got me looking into this a little bit more. What is identity that it drives us to such that we are looking for it in all places? Sometimes in those who shouldn't actually be the ones telling us what our identity is. There's this... In psychology in the 1950s, there's a, there was a, a push towards identifying who you are and, and coming to realize who your identity was. And the push in the 1950s particularly and, and has continued on is one that actually individual can find who they are fully only in absolute isolation. In isolation, do you find who you truly are? And this is a, a, a thing that's been going on for many years now in psychology to push forward this idea that actually only true identity comes in isolation. And when that carries out, we actually get to a point where we see right now where identity is in an absolute crisis point in, in our world, particularly Western nations. And it's because it's a myth. You cannot find self-esteem... You cannot find self-worth within yourself. It doesn't happen. And not only is this not just a, a Christian or biblical worldview, it's something that plays out time and time and time again. And the problem when we actually just look inwards is we're always looking into ourselves to find out if we can be enough if we can be enough to make what we need to be. And what this starts to do is it starts to breed in us, breed in our people, an entitlement. I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. That should be for me. And in this documentary, you see it coming out time and time again. I deserve this. This is for me. Everyone should be on my team. And as a very self-centered, inward-looking it actually only, it, all it does is breed entitlement. 
And we as Christians are, are, are not uh, able to escape this fully. We ourselves are also influenced by this because we are influenced by the world, whether we like it or not. But what we do often is we subtly treat, we subtly treat God as a means for finding our identity. And so still we're looking in ourselves and we're actually coming to God to say, God, now you can help me find this identity that I know is in me anyway. And even us as Christians, we can subtly twist what is God's view and try and make it into our view to find ourselves. And this whole statement, to find yourself, to find oneself, is something that has increased over the years to the point where actually it is something that would be told to every young person, you need to find yourself. You need to go do such and such, or you need to go and fulfill this or that so that you may find yourself. But we can't. You see, the thing that is opposed to us finding true identity, the thing that is opposed to us finding true identity is adultery. I, not adultery. Idolatry. Sorry. Idolatry. Idolatry. Man, this is great, isn't it? Idolatry is opposed to us finding true identity. And the biggest one of these is self-idolatry. Self-idolatry is the very opposition of us ever finding true identity. It is the very thing that will block us every single time for finding out who we really are. And this whole thing of finding yourself is nothing more than making the massive, big self-idolatry as the God. Making it as the main thing in life to find yourself. And it will do the very opposite. And we see this in our world as people become more and more confused about who they are, more and more confused about where they belong. And the truth of this is we are created as reflectors. We reflect the community we're in. We reflect the people we hang around. We reflect those that influence us. We are not created to find truth within ourselves. We are created to reflect truth. And when we hang around those things that are not of God, we start reflecting those very things. We are a reflection of the community we choose to be in. And we see this time and time again. Tribalism is on, the, is on the rise in our society. The divides among different people groups is increasing, not decreasing. Tolerance is becoming less, not more. There are more barriers now between communities than there perhaps has ever been. And part of this is because we only think we can find ourselves inside ourselves. But what is actually the truth is we are a reflection of those we hang out with. What we behold, we become. We see this in our, in our children. I, my, my eldest child, Isabel, when she was very young, we had uh, these, this moment when Hannah and I walked into the room and, and Isabel looked it up and looked at us and she just goes, Oi! 
and then tells us something. What is it? Hey. Okay, she didn't say oi, she said hey, hey, and told us something that she was doing. Immediately, Hannah and I looked at each other and said, don't say that. Yeah, that's rude. You, you, you speak to us properly. Don't just say hey. And we're like, who's teaching this to our child? Who is she hanging around that she would address us as hey? I'm your, I'm your dad. You, respect me, child. All right. And as we're reflecting on how can we stop her saying this word, hey, whenever she wants attention, Isabel started to do something that she wasn't supposed to. And in that moment, both Hannah and I, at the exact same time, looked at Isabel and said, hey, stop that. (laughs) And so what had happened is Isabel was nothing more than a reflection of who she had been influenced by. We are also a reflection of who we are influenced by. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy. Pardon me, it's 1 Timothy 1.16. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So this here is Paul saying, I reflected the very culture I was brought up in, and that very culture made me the foremost of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So here's the Apostle Paul saying that I was one way because of the culture and the, and the life I was brought up into. I have now changed allegiance and I now behold the risen Savior. And because I behold him, there is something of his patience that I am now displaying because I'm reflecting something of him. See, we are created reflectors, and we will reflect that which we behold. So identity is never found inside ourselves. Therefore, it must be found outside ourselves. And that is where most identity is formed. When people have a strong identity, what you'll notice most often is they'll have a strong community that they are part of. They'll have a strong group that is around them. Identity is found outside. So how can our identity be transformed into what it should be? Before that, I just want to read a a little quote from C.S. Lewis. And this is what he says is like without Christ. What I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me 
by devils. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideas. I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. And this is what happens to us, is we often think that these are our thoughts and our ideas, but quite often they are things that are shoved down our throat, or they are those things that we have absorbed, because that is the reflection of the community that we are part of. So how can we change, as Apostle Paul did, from reflecting culture or reflecting our community that is not in line with God, to being able to reflect Christ. We find some of this in Ezekiel 11, verse 17 to 20. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble, assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will, rem- they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, the influences of society. Remove them. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Here we have God's remedy for being able to reflect Him. Part of it is to remove those things that we can that would hinder us from reflecting Him. But the biggest thing is this, that our identity is not found within us. Our identity is outside of us, placed within. It is something that God gives to us. It is something that is His and that He bestows upon us. True identity can only come through the Creator. We have another verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. And it says this, says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here we have once again that we are not our own. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans that actually you're a slave no matter what you do, either a slave to the sin you obey or a slave to righteousness. But either way, you are not your own. You do not own yourself. You are owned either by sin or by God. And the choice is, do you receive the new heart that he has for you or not? And in this moment, and only in that moment, can you start to realize what true identity is. The more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. 
There is so much of Him that millions and millions of little Christ, all different, will still be too few to express Him fully. He made them all. He invented all different men that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. Let me just read that again. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. It is no good trying to be myself without Him. In Him is where we find our true identity. And only in Him we will come to realize who we truly are. And it's only when we start putting ourselves, what we think is ourselves or my life or those things, not, uh, once we put those aside and step fully into who we are in Christ, then we will start to see who we really are. And our true identity can be revealed. But being in Christ... Knowing our identity in Christ is not the end. And as I said before, sometimes we can use that as the means of getting to know who we truly are. But our identity is not the end. It is not the end goal. To know who we are is not the object of why we are in Christ. It is not the purpose of identity. And there's two points I want to bring out about what the purpose of identity is. The first is this. God makes us known in Him so we can make Him known. The reason that we are known is so that we can reflect something of Him. God makes us known so that we can make Him known. Our identity is for making his identity known. We have an identity in Christ so that others may know who Christ is. That is the purpose of our identity. That is a main purpose of our identity. When we find ourselves in Christ, it is not that we would find ourselves, but that others would find Christ. Then they see us, they say, there is something about you, and you say, the thing that you are seeing, let me point to the identity of Christ. The purpose of finding our identity is so that we may make His identity known. This is one of the main points. I want to read a little bit from The God Life from, uh, by a man called Jim Graham. And he, puts it, he, he writes a, a paraphrase of these scriptures and he puts it like this. The incredible thing that grips us is that we can now begin to see things from God's point of view and grasp God's real agenda for us. He has taken us aside and shown us what he alone knew about his eternal intentions because he is that kind of a God. He has done all of this because at the right time, Jesus came and made it possible to unite in history what God had always intended in eternity. Let me read that again. He has done all of this, made our identity known and made us known to him. All of this because at the right time, Jesus came and made it possible to unite in history 
what God has always intended in eternity? What has he united in history that he always intended in eternity? And the purpose is this. And there's another thing that repeats time and time again in this, to the praise of his glorious name, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. This is what's repeated time and time again. What is the purpose? What is the eternal uh, truth that is intended for all times? That we would know who we are in Christ to make his identity known so that we may praise and glorify him now in history as we will do in eternity forever. This is the purpose of identity. And I see it as this, and it's almost in my mind, I, I have this picture of an updraft. I don't know if you've, you've seen eagles as they, as they get into an updraft, and they just go around and around, and they get taken up. This is what the identity in Christ is like. We come in at a low angle. We come in here. We're quite low. And God reveals something of himself, which then allows us to reflect something of him, which then shows us something about ourselves, which then we reflect about him, which then he shows us about himself, which then we learn about ourselves. And we have this updraft of identity, our identity mixed in into Christ. And before long, we see as God sees things. Our identity is so mingled up in the identity of Christ that as we look out, all of a sudden we see as God sees it. And we see history now as he sees eternity. And our identity allows us to praise his glorious name now as we will in eternity. And I have this picture time and time again of that updraft of identity in Christ. And that is the second main point. Is it to the glory of God and to enjoy Him. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as, as all of you are familiar with, um, I'm sure, um, all 103 question and answers. Um, so the, the catechism, for those who don't know what a catechism is, is there was a way of learning truths about God. Um, and they brought them in, and what they'll do is they have a question, and then there'd be an answer and the biblical truth for that answer. And the very first one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, it, it says this, What is the chief end of man? And the response is this, To glorify and enjoy God forever. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Let me read Psalm 73. 25 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge and I may tell of all your works. Once again, reflecting God in what he does, we reflect it in us. But not only that, there is no other reason to be in heaven. Who do I have in heaven other than you? What's the point of heaven? It is only to glorify you. There is none besides you. There's no desire I have more than you. 
Our ultimate goal, the chief end of our lives, the chief purpose of us is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me read a little bit more from the God life for you. This is the result of identity realized. God did something excitingly wonderful in the moment of honesty as you stubbornly face the actual reality of your situation apart from God. He identified that you indeed were His, and His life burst forth in you, transforming, life-changing life that delivered you from religion and gave you reality. Something began in you in history that one day will be perfected in eternity so that men and angels will worship this God for his comprehensive completeness and indescribable shadowless light. This is what it will be like to glorify God in heaven. The two purposes of our identity is this. That we would make God known. God makes our identity known. That we would make His identity known. Our identity is for making His identity known. And the second is this. To glorify God and enjoy Him. John Piper describes glorification like this. He says, glorification is being what we must be in order to maximally enjoy God in the fullest way forever. Let me read that again because this... If we grasp this, this, this for me has been something I'm just like, I, I, I'm trying to comprehend this. But this here is something that will transform the way that we look not just at ourselves and others, but what we will look at God and allow Him to change our lives. Glorification is, the, is being what we must be in order to maximally enjoy God in the fullest way forever. That's what glorification is. To give glory to God is being all that we need to be, all that we must be, so that we can enjoy Him fully and glorify Him forever. And so our identity in finding who, our, who we truly are, its purpose is only so that we may maximally enjoy Him. And that we may be all that we need to be so that we can glorify Him forever. For me, this is absolutely astounding, that God would do such a thing that he would say, come, you are mine, I have bought you with a price, now come to me, I will show you who you truly are, so that you may be all that you must be, so that you can maximally enjoy me. So it's not just sometimes enjoy me, it's not just enjoy me in the good times, it means that in no matter what the circumstances of life is, no matter what is thrown at us, no matter how high or how low we feel, we will always know that God is working in us a perfection of who we are so that we may maximally enjoy Him forever. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, God, give me that identity. Make me known who I truly am so that I can be one who maximally enjoys you, who can fully delight in you forever. Identity has purpose. Identity is not the end. Identity has the purpose that we can fully enjoy God forever. So how do we do this?
Well, if true identity is wrapped up in being in Christ, then we need to get to know Him more. Because as we get to know who He is truly more, then He will show who we truly are more. What does that mean? It's not rocket science. It's not difficult. It means reading about Jesus more. It means speaking and hearing from Jesus more. It means praying. It means being around those who reflect Jesus. It means reflecting Jesus to others. And sometimes it means that we have to go the extra mile to be able to reflect Jesus to others. For us to truly find our identity, we must truly be in Christ. And to be fully in Christ, then we must be able to obey all that he has called us to obey. And it does require that we give all of ourselves. For he wants nothing less than to make us perfect. And that requires all of us. So to find our identity, we must get close to Christ. We must enable ourselves to be able to point out and say that there is definitely the identity of Christ. And as he applies that to us, he will show something in us that will be so magnificent that we will go, I never knew that's what, how you saw me. I never knew that I could enjoy you so much. See, identity is the very essence of our joy being bubbling out and bubbling over. When we are in our true identity in Christ, we cannot help but be joyful. So my urge of you is this. Read about Jesus often, as often as you can. If that's one minute in a day, if that's five minutes for the week, whatever it is that you can do, read about Jesus as much as you can. Speak to Jesus as much as you can. Pray to him about your day. Speak to him about your ups and your downs. Speak to him about your future and your past. Speak to him about the present troubles and the present joys. Speak to him and then be silent and hear from him. Let him speak into your life. Let the scripture as you look at it, let it reflect back to you who he is so that you may see who you are intended to be. Let the Scriptures speak to you. Hang around those who reflect Christ. Be around those who are reflectors of Christ. Come into groups. Be in discipleship groups. Be in church life. Be in these places where actually you will start to see the reflection of Christ in others so that you may also start to reflect that very thing who is Christ. And you will... Before long, you will see that you have an identity more solid than you had ever imagined. These are the things, the practical things that we can do. We're going to come to communion now. We're running a little late. But as we take communion together, I want us to be able to understand that actually communion, out of all the sacraments that we do, is the one where we are what? We are looking at Christ fully. We are coming before him, and in that moment of communion, we're saying, I lay aside all of me so that I can see all of you. 
Communion is the very thing that allows us to come into Christ in a way that perhaps nothing else can. It is one of the most precious things that we can ever do. And I would encourage those moments when you do get together in that reflecting community of Christ, that, that community that reflects the identity of Christ, and that would be a moment, I would say, to break communion together. For it is the pinnacle of identifying with Christ. And just as we're taking communion, part of what I said is a purpose of knowing our identity in Christ is so that we may make his identity known. And in this moment, there is opportunity also to think of those who do not know the identity of Christ and for, for us to be able to pray for them. So I wonder, Kay, if you want to just come and share what you shared this morning with me. Good morning. I've been thinking about unsaved members of my family, those who haven't yet um, known Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And at this moment, five members of my family are in the French Alps skiing. They're staying at a chalet called Altitude, which is run by a Christian family, specifically for the purpose of gospel outreach. Mm. And I've been praying that as they come into contact with the altitudes, that they will receive the gospel. Every night there's worship and testimonies in the chalet. So I'm really praying for them. And maybe um, you would like to pray for your families and perhaps mine as well. All five or two are already in Christ. Three, not yet. Mm, not yet, I love that. So uh, I'm praying for them. And I would love it if you could give me an amen to that. In mm. Deaf Church, we sign amen as... <laughs> so, amen. Amen. So maybe we just take a moment and let's just, in our hearts, just lift up to God those who do not know his identity yet. And also in our hearts say, Lord, we lay aside finding ourselves so that we may find you fully. And in finding you, you give us fully who we are. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
we take this bread, and as the Lord Jesus did, we, we, we bless, we break, and we give. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we partake in your body here in the, in the, um, in the symbolism of this bread, that we may truly partake in your life fully, that we may be known fully in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Likewise, as Jesus took the cup and blessed it and gave it, we remember that you gave your life for us, that you sacrificed your life and your blood was shed so that we may be known as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we proclaim this, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the hope that he will return one day, and when he does, we may glorify him forever, for he may be seen fully as he is in his glory. So as we partake of this juice, may we remember the blood of Jesus that washes us clean, so that we may be counted as his his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you that this time of being able to see that our identity is only ever truly the one that you give us. We thank you that it is only in Christ that we can know who we truly are. We thank you that identity itself is not the purpose, but actually our purpose is that we may make you known. And even that is only part of the story because it is about taking as many people as we can into that place where we can glorify you forever, which is to be who we must be, to maximally enjoy you forever and ever. So we pray that as we go through this week, that we may look to you more. May we dig into your word. May we hear you speak as we come together in prayer meetings and discipleship groups and one-to-ones and those moments. May we look for Christ's identity upon our lives and on those lives that we are around. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.